The last message we ended with talking about Churchill's speech to the House of Commons, where Chamberlain, a weak prime minister, had basically auctioned off in the form of peace, he thought, the land of Czechoslovakia to Hitler. And, and then Chamberlain, uh, Churchill shows up in the House of Commons and gives an incredible speech about choosing dishonor and losing our virtue because of not negotiating from strength, but negotiating out of our weakness. As I've thought back on that, here's some things that I think Churchill got. By the, by the way, you ought to go on iTunes and buy the 50 great speeches of Churchill and listen to them. You will not hear those kind of speeches today. They were speeches of a man that was pugnacious in his personality as well as in his face. But, but they, he was a pugnacious man. He was an intense man who believed in his cause. Here's what Churchill knew. Churchill knew you can't compromise with evil. You can't appease evil. You can't negotiate with evil. And anything less than confronting evil ultimately leads to defeat. Now, Gideon is a man who has confronted evil but there's a sad ending to Gideon's story. If it had ended with his victory over the Midianites, Gideon would be an untarnished story of a life well lived. But it is how you end that you remember. Jeremiah 17:5 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man whose trust is in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Now, God had given uh, Israel this command, and he had given Israel this handful of men to fight this giant army, and he had prevailed because God had delivered the Midianites into the hand of Gideon. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So let's look at uh, the lessons from a hero, and there's some early lessons. First of all, God's call means God's power is available to us. When God calls us to do something, God called us to do the missions and the ministries that we do. When God calls a young man or a young woman into ministry, when God calls us to go across the street, God gives us the power to do what we are supposed to do. So God's call means God's power is available. God calls the equipped and he equips the call. I mean, that's what that means. Secondly, when your call is tested, it's crucial to take a courageous stand because no call is going to go without a test. I mean, there are battles and there are tests that are going to come your way. If you're called to take a stand, it has to be met with a courageous stand. It can't be a cowardly, uh, not real sure, I'm going to stand for a while and just kind of see how the winds blow here and, and see what's going to go on. It can't be checking the polls. When God calls you to take a stand, you take a strong stand. And at the first place he takes a stand is with his family. Number three, Gideon obeyed God's command in the battle. He didn't second guess God's command. Now, if it had been me, quite honestly, if God had said you got too many, I'd say, are you kidding? Do you know how much they outnumber us now? How can you say we have too many? But God had a lesson that the battle was the Lord's. The call was from God and the battle was the Lord's. Number four, obedience doesn't wait for a majority. Obedience doesn't wait for a majority. 
By the way, do you know, I mean, this is crazy because, you know, by the way, in America, a lot of times the majority is wrong. Do you know that there are still people that believe we never really put a man on the moon, that that was all done in a Hollywood studio somewhere? I mean, when you got those kind of people walking on the planet, you can tell them anything and they'll believe it because they're already can't believe facts. So they'll believe a lie. But when God calls us, you don't wait for majority. You don't wait and see, now, is everybody on board? Have we got everybody moving in the right direction? Everybody got their ticket punched? Everybody doing the right thing? You just act on it. Number five, faith can be tested, can be trusted. A faith that can be tested can be trusted. By the way, it's not faith until it's tested. It's easy for me to say I have faith in something until God tests me on it. And then it can be trusted. So here we are before the battle. God refuses to allow Gideon to attack with 32,000. In chapter 7 and verse 2, God said, lest Israel become boastful, saying, my own power delivered me. And so they get down to a small number. They go and do what God tells them to do. They attack the Gideons. uh, The Midianites are killed. 130,000 of them are killed. And in chapter 8, verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. Both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Now, those were some early lessons, but 822 is a key verse because what they're asking for is a king. And so there are some dangerous conclusions. Not one time after this battle, if you read the text, Not one time after this battle do they go into a time of worship and praise for God using them to destroy the enemy, for God empowering them, equipping them, giving them the plan that the battle was the Lord's and that that my own power delivered me. So what they do, it, it indicates their own depravity that they think it was Gideon. I mean, they know, they've got to know, Gideon has spoken to them. He has told them, this is what the Lord wants us to do. And God has delivered them against overwhelming odds. And the first thing they do is not praise God. The first thing they do is, we ought to put Gideon in charge of us. He's a good leader. Gideon was only a good leader because he listened to God. That's what made him a good leader. And after this great victories, of Moses and Deborah and Joshua, you find times of praise where the people acknowledge God is the one that did this, but not here. And so here's the point. If God is not the central focus of our lives, everything else will be out of focus. The nation was delivered and they cried out to God, but they did not want to follow God with their whole hearts. They just wanted to get out of the pain that they were in out of the suffering that they were feeling. But they didn't want to go back to following God. There's another indication that the nation is moving toward wanting a king. And here's the question you got to ask yourself. Why in the world do you want a king? Because God's delivered you without one. Now think about it. Why would they want a king? Here's why. They wanted to be like every other nation. 
They wanted to mix in. They wanted people to say, oh, well, there's the king of Midian, and there's the king of the Amorites, and there's the king of the Philistines, and there's the king, and here's our king. And so we can have a summit and all walk out of the palace together and, and talk, look, we got all our kings lined up. But we're a nation surrounded by nations of kings, and we have no king. Yes, they did. God was their king. And God used judges to deliver them, but this is a violation for Deuteronomy 33, 5 says, Jehovah was the king of Israel. They already had a king to rule over them. It was Jehovah. Israel was established to be a theocracy, ruled by God. But what Israel wanted, they didn't want a God that they had to trust by faith. They wanted a king that they could go talk to. Here's what they wanted. They wanted a commander-in-chief. Now listen to me. They wanted a commander-in-chief that would act according to their whims. Not according to what was best for the land. And they wanted a king. Now think about it. Go back. Just use your imagination. Gideon is the youngest and the least of the least tribe and the least family. They wanted a king, whether they even realized it or not, they wanted a king that they could control. And they could remind him, you know what? We put you in this office. We're, we're the reason you got here. We asked you to be the king, but you better remember where you came from. You better remember that we can always get rid of you and get another king. You can't do that with God. <laughs> When God is the king, you don't get to decide when he gets off the throne. He's always ruling. He's always reigning. But they're asking for a king because they wanted somebody they could look to and blame. So if they got defeated, they could point and say, well, Gideon, it's your fault that we lost. It's your fault that we were weak. And so here they are. It, it, they want a monarch to rule and reign over them. That they would mindlessly follow and quickly forget. But the reason you know they're acting for a king is because of what they said in verse 22. Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son. Now, really? <laughs> now, the reason I'm harping on this has a theological application, believe it or not. Here's the theological application. The church has one head, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the head, we're the body. The role of a pastor, an elder, or a leader in a church is to look to the Scriptures to discern the mind of Christ, but ultimately to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to say, God, it's not our church, it's your church. It's not our opinion, it's your word. It's not our will, it's your will. And we surrender and submit to you. That's what we think going in not what we say after we've made our decisions. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, there are two heads, and, and anything with two heads is a monster. And there's only one head of the church, and that's Jesus Christ. And so one of the oldest tendencies of our flesh is to exalt men to the place of God. Now, there have been some godly men that have been leaders. There have been some godly men that have been popes. I, I, I know people 
in the Catholic Church that are strong believers in Jesus Christ. They, you know, I know people that are in other denominations that don't believe that baptism saves them, but they're inside that denomination. But the problem comes when we begin by our fallen nature to exalt men to the place of God. I'm not, I mean, Chuck Swindoll said it best. The only thing that belongs on a pedestal is flowers and the bust of dead men. Nothing else belongs on a pedestal. No pastor should be on a pedestal. No preacher should be on a pedestal. No man fallen and sinful in his nature should be put on a pedestal as having the final word from God. God's already written his final word and he doesn't need our comments on it. He has spoken and he has not stuttered. So, they're looking for a leader. They want a king. Now, Gideon says to them in verse 23, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Good answer. Stop talking. Now, one of my favorite examples of a man with humility is George Washington Carver. If you've not read much about George Washington Carver, you ought to read about him. He's a phenomenal man, an incredibly successful man, a genius, and yet may be one of the most humble people that ever walked this planet in the history of America. Carver never let his success go to his head. Let me just tell you some of his accomplishments. His paintings won prizes at World's Fair. His Musical skills led to a scholarship offer from the Boston Conservatory of Music, but he chose to specialize in agricultural chemistry to help his people out and to be a greater service to them. He is called the wizard of farm chemistry. He was so good at what he did that Thomas Edison offered him a six-figure salary in a time when very few people made six-figure salaries. But he chose to stay at the Tuskegee Institute for $1,500 a year because he said he could better serve mankind at the Tuskegee Institute than he could working for Thomas Edison at a wealthy man's salary. Here's what he did, just a few things he did. He discovered ways to make plastic from soybeans. He he discovered how to make rubber from peanuts and flour from sweet potatoes. I mean, here's a guy that the world would have put on. He would have been on all the interview shows. He'd have been on television. Everybody would have known his name. He could have traveled around the country making speeches and been famous. But he chose to stay at his calling and at his field and do something that would better serve mankind. And most of the people who benefit from the inventions and the discoveries he made don't even know he existed. Gideon would have been very smart to stop at verse 23. I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now let's look at lessons learned the hard way. Verse 24. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment and every one of them threw an earring there from the spoil. Now remember, that's 135,000 earrings. You think your wife's jewelry box is cluttered up. 
The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian and beside the neck bands that were on their camel's necks. I mean, you're talking about a lot of gold here. Verse 27, Gideon made it into an ephod. Here's where he blows it. He made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. And so it became a snare to Gideon and his household. That was a custom for the Ishmaelite, Ishmaelite men to wear earrings. And so Gideon wanted some proof, some evidence that here's this man who was a nobody who became a somebody because he's defeated them. And so he wants some spoils of war. And so he says, you know, I don't want much. Just get me some earrings. I don't want to be king. Just get me some of those little ear bobs that they've got and just kind of throw them down here on this purple robe. Purple, a symbol of royalty. And so they, they throw all this down and he wants to use it as a reminder to everyone of his great victory, not the Lord's great victory, of his great victory. He made the goal into an ephod. Now remember, an ephod is described by Moses as an item that the high priest wore when he went into the sanctuary. And before the scriptures were fulfilled, the ephod was one of the ways that the high priest would discern the will of God in the presence of God in the tabernacle. So it was a, it was a historical thing from the past all the way back to the days of Moses that had been used by the priest to determine God's will. But here's what Gideon does. Remember why you don't go for a fleece? Gideon makes the ephod a permanent fleece because the ephod was used by the priest. Gideon is not a priest. He was used by a priest to discern God's will. God had already told Gideon what his will was. And so he makes this ephod and he puts it in his hometown to try to discern or to assure people that God's presence was with, with him and the ephod had become a permanent fleece. Now, here's the background. Not one time in Judges do you see the high priest functioning as the high priest, doing what he's supposed to be doing, wearing the ephod, going into the, the tabernacle, going into the Holy of Holies. You don't see any reference to the priest functioning. And so Gideon, this man that God has touched, says, well, if the priest won't do it, I'll do it. And he assumes a role that God has never called him to. God called him to be a judge, not a priest. But he gets this ephod, and despite all the good that he had done, he puts it up in his hometown, and Israel plays the harlot with it. Meaning, Israel turned just like that to idolatry. And rather than praising God for the victory, they began to worship an ephod made of rings taken out of the ears of pagans. They began to worship a gold ornament. And so their spiritual adultery leads them to apostasy again. First of all, Gideon assumed a role that wasn't his to take. It just was not his role to take. He, he said the right thing. I, I'm not going to rule over you. Then he said the wrong thing. But give me something so that you'll remember that I, that I did lead you into victory. 
Secondly, Gideon assumed he had a right to alter or improve on the recorded will of God. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, you remember that the tabernacle and the ephod were at Shiloh, not in Oprah. They were in Shiloh. And so not only does he take the ephod and Israel plays the harlot with it, he says, I'm going to tell you where you're going to come worship. And you're going to come to my house. And you're going to be on my land, in my territory, doing what I tell you to do. Notice how his pride is swelling up. Notice how he's fallen from being that humble guy hiding out, scared when the angel speaks to him. And now he's got an ephod. We are idol makers at heart. Gideon made an ephod and it became an idol. The brass serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness became an idol. And all the way through the Old Testament, and especially in the prophets, you see them constantly talking to the people of Israel about idolatry. But don't think for a moment that idolatry is limited to gold and wood. America is full of idolatry because we are idol makers in our hearts. We will choose to worship anything other than God. So, in the heart of Gideon, buried there somewhere, I believe, it's my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. In the heart of Gideon, somewhere, there was that youngest son, never got recognized, least family, and the devil whispered in his ear, now you're somebody now, prove it. And the fame and the success went to his head. Again, you don't have to let them kick you around anymore. I mean, they didn't treat you right when you were growing up. But I want to tell you one thing. Now that you've won this great victory, you can pull the string anytime you want to and make them do what you want them to do. You remind them every day that if it wasn't for you, they'd still be in bondage to the Midianites. And so success went to his head. So look at what he does. He puts the ephod in his hometown so all of Israel would have to come to him to see it. Just like in the days of his father. Remember his great act? He tears down the, the Baal and the Asheroth that his father had put up in that town. And his father stands with him and says he did the right thing. Now what does he do? He goes back and builds another idol. Tore down one idol, builds another one. He creates a centralized shrine, not in Shiloh where the high priest was dwelling, not there, but where it would be focused on him and on his family. He was, in fact, setting it up for him to be treated like a king and his sons to succeed him. So I want you to look at it. Chapter 8 and verse 30, he had a harem. Now, a harem was a prerogative of pagan kings. It wasn't a prerogative of Israel. He had a harem. In chapter 9 and verse 2, he had 70 sons. He was a busy little boy. He had 70 sons, and they ruled over all different parts of the territory of Israel. In chapter 8 and verse 31, his son is named Abimelech, which means my father is king. Oh, no, no, I, no, I don't want to rule over you. No, 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 I don't want to rule. I just need some gold earrings. 
And then he names one of his sons, my father is king. Is he not acting like a king? Which means he's also acting like a pagan. He's acting like a pagan king. Deuteronomy 17, 17. God knew this would happen. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Neither shall a king multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Someone has said nothing succeeds like success, but it could also be said nothing fails like success. So here's a man who has ascended, and yet he blows it at the end. I've seen that way too much in my life. Most of the guys that I was in college that were majoring in Bible and guys that I went to seminary with are not in the ministry today. They were brighter, they were sharper, they were more gifted than I could ever hope to be. But somewhere along the line, they started reading their press releases. And somewhere along the line, they started padding their resumes to make themselves look better than they really were, or more important than they really were. And somewhere along the line, they forgot where they grew up, and they became too big too proud, too sure of themselves. And one by one, they've fallen. You see, it's how you end that you'll be remembered. By the way, it can happen with a church. It could happen to this church. We could become so proud of our accomplishments that we start to make idols of our accomplishments. We could be so proud of our name that we make an idol of our name. We could be so proud of our ministries that we make an idol of our ministries. Here's a principle that I think we need to always operate by. Whatever we can't take to the altar will ultimately become a God to us. Whatever we can't lay on the altar, if we can't be Abraham with Isaac and go to the altar and lay it down and say, God, if this is, if this is it, if, if I need to prove to you my love by laying this down and not doing it, if we, if we can't do that, then we, we have in fact made an idol. I, I'll tell you this. Every year I ask God if we're supposed to continue to refresh every year because I don't want us to just do it because we do it. Amen. I don't want it to become an idol. I love doing it. I love doing the one in Pigeon Forge for pastors. I, I love the opportunity we're going to have in February, but I, I will say to you, and I believe I say this as best I can understand the wickedness of my own heart, which Jeremiah says. If God told me to stop it, I'd stop it because I don't want to do it just because I do it. And it's not about me enjoying doing it. And it's not about me fellowshipping with my friends. It's about, is this what God wants us to do? And so I want to read you this quote by John Hunter. Hunter says, in some ways, we can be like this 
great men and women can be used of the Lord. They can start organizations, societies, or denominations to commemorate and extend the glory of God in their work. These can function wonderfully as planned to begin with. But then, as the vision goes, so does the response of those who follow those leaders. This can deteriorate until the purpose of the organization, society, or denomination becomes simply to maintain its own entity. So we find people dedicated to keep a certain movement in existence, regardless of whether the Lord is purposing to use it or not. Their ephod takes their allegiance and true efforts away from the living Lord to a dead society. I don't want us to wake up one day and say, we've got an ephod and we've been worshiping it. Whether it's this building or our ministries or our property or whatever it is, it always has to exist for one purpose, to serve the glory of God. There is no other reason to do what we do than to serve the glory of God. H.A. Ironside, who's a great preacher, wrote a series of commentaries. One of his last messages at Dallas Theological Seminary told the students there he often prayed, and I think this is a good prayer for us to pray, especially as we get older. Ironside said, Oh God, keep me from becoming a foolish old man. Ironside also said he was blind when he died. He also said in that same sermon, he held up his Bible and he said, I wish I'd read this book more and other books less. I can tell you folks, you can make an idol out of anything. There are people in our church, pardon me while I clear out a spot, there are people at our church that have read every Twilight book, Fifty Shades of Grey, and all the Hunger Games, and haven't read through the Bible one time. That means you have a God other than God. That means that fiction is more reality to you than truth. And that's dangerous. Because a mind not consumed by the Word of God will be consumed by another God. even good things. William Culberson, who is uh, president of Moody Bible Institute, uh, Warren Wiersbe wrote a biography about him. He's a phenomenal man. In fact, I have uh, several of his books in my library. One day a box showed up and Warren had sent me a box of books that came out of Culberson's personal library that are all signed by Culberson. And and so I treasure those. They're not where I, out where anybody can just see them and pick them up. But Culbertson found out toward the end of his life that the, the trustees at Moody Bible Institute were about to name a building after him. And he went into the trustee meeting, and this is what he said. But you don't know how I will end. As an old man, Culbertson said, you don't know how I'll end. I haven't run the race yet. I haven't finished the course yet. 
And it's very easy sometimes to put God-like, Yahweh-like status on people or things that God has done and forget that God shares His glory with no one. No one. So I want to give you a verse to end with. And then I I want us to sing, uh, Mark, can we do How Great Is Our God? Uh, So y'all come on up. So I'm going to give you 2 Timothy 4, 7. This is the verse that's on Ron Dunn's grave. I hope that when my life is over that this can be said of me. But I don't know that yet. Because I could end up a foolish old man. I hope not. I pray not. I hope you're praying I don't. But some men have failed late in life. Age does not exempt us from temptation. Second Timothy 4.7 I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. You know what? Gideon could never have that written on his grave. But Paul could. Demas couldn't have that written on his grave. But John Mark could. Samson couldn't have it written on his grave. But Simon Peter could. You see, it's how you end that they remember. I remember Vance Havner in the last years of his life. And I distinctly remember sitting in the sermon, and I was sitting on about the third row back, and I remember him saying, he said, you know, he said, if you fail, no matter how much good you've done, all they'll ever remember is that you stumbled on the last lap. Folks, we need to pray that we don't become like Gideon. And we start finding ways to make idols that draw attention to us and forget that the victory is the Lord's. God gives the victory, not us. If there are any victories won by this church, if there are any people that are saved, if there are lives that are changed, if, if we make an impact with the Dutch in Germany, it, it won't be because we're better than anybody else. It'll be the favor and the blessing of God. It won't be because God thinks we're more special than anybody else. It will be that we have been more available. You see, God is using us to the extent that he can use us. Gideon got a lot of God. He saw a lot of favor of God. He saw a lot of blessings. I mean, there's nobody else in the Bible that you take a handful of men and beat 135,000. That's a pretty good testimony. You know, that'd make a pretty good book at the Christian bookstore. Nobody else like him, but he doesn't end well. And the key is not just how we run the race, but how we finish the race. Let's stand and let's sing, How Great Is Our God.